Welcome to the Mycotoxin Matters podcast from Alltech Mycotoxin Management. As mycotoxins present an ever-increasing threat to livestock production, join us as we discuss these impacts and potential solutions, sustainable farming, and our vision for a planet of plenty. Hi, my name is Nick Adams, the Global Director for Alltech's Mycotoxin Management Team, and you're very welcome to this episode of Mycotoxin Matters, where we're joined by Dr. Max Hawkins. Uh, Max works with risk assessment of feedstuffs and feeds uh, as they relate to the impact of mycotoxins on all species. He brings years of experience that includes not only mycotoxin management, but also livestock production, nutrition, breeding, and genetics, covering all different livestock species. So, Max, welcome to Thank Mycotoxin you, Nick. Matters. Thank you, I'm certainly glad you had me with you this morning. Well, Max, today we're going to pick up and talk around the concept of forages and mycotoxins. And obviously, when we think about forages within the concept of the ruminant diet, increasingly important uh, when we think about the, the, the cost of diets, when we think about you know where forages have come in terms of digestibility, their contribution to uh, the, the ruminant diet. When we When we think about then uh, the concept of mycotoxins, that's really where we want to sort of pick up. And maybe we could start by having you just give us a little bit of an overview about what you're seeing, uh, generally speaking, with forages uh, this year in terms of, of mycotoxins. Well, this year in terms of mycotoxins, it's a little bit similar to previous years and a little bit dissimilar to previous years. Um, every year we we do experience mycotoxin issues. But the severity of that and which mycotoxins may be involved do tend to vary. Uh, in North America, from corn silage this year, we didn't see as high a risk on average, uh, even though the majority of that risk still comes from fusarium mycotoxins, such as the, the type B trichothecenes, type A trichothecenes, fumonisins, arolinone, emerging mycotoxins. Those are all still prevalent, but at somewhat lower risk levels on average. We know that weather is a significant influence on fusarium production. Uh, it likes a moderate temperature and moisture, higher levels of moisture through either rain or humidity. And in certain parts of the country this year, that's exactly what we had. You had somewhat of a droughted summer, and then late season rains for two to three weeks prior to harvest across that area. And we have had an extremely high levels of type B trichothecenes, fumonisins in those areas, more eastern corn belt, if you're familiar with the U.S. Uh, as we went through Europe this year, uh, trichothecenes were a little bit higher, uh, but we still have the predominant pressure of penicilliums and storage mycotoxins, primarily because of the crop that we have with the prevalence of grass silages then versus the corn silages from North America. So we still have the risk from the same groups of mycotoxins year in and year out. The severity of those will change with weather patterns and impact on the crop. If we think about that, the different 
types of forage that we may be putting up in, in different parts of the world. And that is one thing that will determine the types of molds and mycotoxins. Um, also then the, the climate side of things. So how much, when we think down to an individual farm level, how much may the mycotoxin picture on an individual farm change from the other farms in that county or that state, for example? Is it really coming down to that sort of microclimate at the farm level? I feel very much so. I mean, it's very uh, mycotoxins and the molds that generate these mycotoxins can be very microclimate that are microgeographic areas. If you would think of a cornfield and the variation in the corn quality from end to end and side to side. Not every corn plant in that field is equal in terms of growth and development and maturity. And therefore we have much, that same amount of variation across that field, that mold can be a more significant or less significant influence. Uh, plant health is going to certainly vary and therefore mycotoxin challenge is going to vary throughout that field. That may be the problem with the neighboring field. It may not be a problem with the neighboring field. Were they all planted on the same date? Did they use the same variety of corn? Did they use the same amount of fertilizer, herbicide, fungicide, insecticides? Those things all vary farm to farm. Uh, it, it may rain on my farm today. You're a mile down the road. You got no rain today. So those things can all play into significant factors. So Max, then... If we look at the uh, the information from some of the analysis that, that you've done over the past year or so, do you see the scenario where certain farms may have no mycotoxins and other farms may have really, really high levels of mycotoxins or, or, or is it not quite so simple as that? Well, it's it's not quite as simple as that, but in the producer's eyes, it is. I'm working with a situation in uh, the northern part of the U.S. now where there's one very, very small group. It's almost one farm. As a matter of fact, it's extremely high trichothesins. And yet the surrounding farms are all very low risk. Uh, one farm has no trichothesins present. And it, it all comes down to when, when those fields got planted in terms of what I'm being able to find now, when those fields were planted, harvested, and the stage of maturity of the plant when they were impacted by severe rain event. So that one farm just happened to be at the right stage of maturity when they got a pretty much a torrential rainstorm, and it has impacted itself with extremely high trichothecene levels. And you mentioned earlier some of the different factors, the fungicide use, et cetera, and you're talking about climate now. So clearly then lots of different things that depending on how all they come together on a particular day or a series of days, that combined effect is going to determine what type of mycotoxin risk that farm harvests in a particular year. That is true. And then to further compound that, particularly here in North America, as we have made dairies larger, more cows in, in one location, 
or feeding more cows out of one location. It's, it's meant that instead of us taking all that variation from say one or two fields, now we take all that variation from maybe 20 or 30 fields over a bigger geographic area and we bring all of that variation into one or two silage facilities. Not only do we have to worry about what was local, but now we have to worry about the variation that we have imported from a, a larger geographical area and put into one feed facility that now we're going to be forced to manage that for the entire year. So we've somewhat compounded that problem. I mean, if you look at it from a climate change, weather pattern, those have all been significant factors, but scale of production and management have also contributed to that risk issue. So in terms then of, of understanding that risk, Max, what does that tell us about testing, the need for testing, what type of testing, how do, how do producers and nutritionists, veterinarians, how do they try and sort of start to get their minds around understanding that risk and how it's, how it's evolving? I would say an industry as a whole, Nick, is that they're, they're much more interested in it. They give it much greater attention and significance in terms of its impact or potential impact on production. Many times uh, a nutritionist is not terribly interested in harvest or an, an analysis right at harvest because their primary focus is nutrition to the cows. And so they're much more interested in a nutritional analysis when we uh, after fermentation and we open that up and begin to feed it. And that's when they'd like to more than likely do a mycotoxin analysis. If we want to be educational in this and do some training and show what is possible, we need to be able to do an analysis at both harvest and when we open up to begin feeding after fermentation, this set of weather circumstances, growing season circumstances, harvest challenges has created this level of mycotoxin, and that level of mycotoxin has done this through the fermentation process. That's what we now have to challenge the cows with. So if we want to be able to help a producer uh, better identify challenges during the growing season, improve on harvesting and filling silage facilities. We need that analysis at harvest. It's a great teaching tool. It's a great information tool. And then we use that data to further study what happens during fermentation so that we know the exact challenge that we put in front of the cows later on in the year. One of the things that, uh, that you touched on was the different types of of crops and maybe we we pick up on that now as you talked about some of that uh, that risk uh, that comes during the the storage so you talked about uh, corn or maize silage and grass what are some of the differences there as you see the risk and then how does that translate into that storage phase particularly well primarily the the challenges that we see with samples that come into our labs or samples that even our, our uh, RAPI read system uh, reports. When we look at corn silage, we're looking at primarily fusarium mycotoxins at harvest. 
Don, T2, HT2, Zeralinone, Fumanacin, those that group of mycotoxins that are generated by fusarium molds. As you well know, those can present serious risk to animal health and performance. Intakes, production levels, gut health, immune response can all be severely impacted. When we look at the, and that can be somewhat of an issue when we, if we go to small grain silages, wheatage, barleyage, those types of, of uh, forages, fusarium tends to be a greater impactor there. Uh, maybe not as significant as it is with corn or maize silage, but still the main issue. When we get to grass silages, we tend to not have as much fusarium, particularly if we've had adequate growth on the grass and we're not really trying to harvest it, cut it extremely low and and pull in more soil for higher ash contents. Uh, We tend to be less risk with fusariums, not to say they're not present, but they'll be present at typically much lower levels. But then we tend to get into more of the storage mycotoxin issues with the penicilliums and some of the other aspergillus molds that become the big problem. The problem will manifest itself even more as the crop, whichever crop it is, has been stressed more or delayed in harvest. So if we get it in drier, we get less compaction, we get greater oxygen penetration, we can almost guarantee that we're going to have increased levels in penicilliums and other aspergillus mycotoxins. And penicilliums can be a a very significant impact, as I think you've seen in the the UK over the past couple seasons in penicilliums. We went through some dry weathers, uh, had some mature dry forages that got harvested, and loss in compaction and penicillium levels were quite high. If you look at the different types of mycotoxins then that we're talking about, and you've said there, Max, that during storage, some of these mycotoxins can, can evolve, can increase depending on the conditions. Are there scenarios where some of those mycotoxins may decrease in storage? What's the experience around, around that concept? Well, typically when I'm working with producers, working with our, our people out in the field, I try to emphasize from the point that these forages are, from a mycotoxin standpoint, the best they'll ever be is the day that they're harvested. And what you really hope for is that that level stays the same clear through feed out because they do have the opportunity to increase during storage. And a lot of that is dependent, as we just talked about, the the health of the plant, the stage of maturity of the plant at harvest, moisture content, compaction, reducing oxygen penetration. All of those things play, they play into it greatly as to what's going to happen during that fermentation and storage process. Now, there, there's currently a new paper that's out from Van Dyke that would indicate that there had been a decrease infusarium mycotoxins throughout that fermentation process. Uh, They didn't see that decrease necessarily in the penicilliums and aspergillus. Uh, And I think that the decrease somewhat surprised them in the fusariums. I would say that we typically do not see that in the field. So what it has done for 
me and what I'm looking at coming up this year is that we're going to take a, a much greater in, insight into that and, and really try to identify some silages that, that do have a challenge, some that don't necessarily have a challenge, uh, do some exact measuring at harvest, and we may even do some more harvest uh, analysis throughout fermentation uh, and then certainly at the end of fermentation. Uh, but I think that's going to depend a lot too, not only on what has stressed that plant prior to, but also where is that decrease happening within the silage facility itself? Is it in the upper level, the middle level, the lower level, the shoulders? Where is that decrease actually happening? If we know where it's happening, we may be able to know those exact factors that contribute to a decrease if there is a decrease. Maybe then as we sort of start to, to wrap up, uh, we, we've talked about these different types of mycotoxins, the, the fusarium mycotoxins that come uh, before the harvest typically, and then the, uh, the penicillium mycotoxins that come typically more so after the harvest during storage. When the cow consumes these uh, the, the silages, the feeds that contain these mycotoxins, what happens to the mycotoxins? How well is the rumen adapted to try and uh, deal with these mycotoxins, so to speak? Oh, the rumen is our friend uh, when it comes to mycotoxins. <clears throat> the rumen does have the ability to uh, break down or denature certain mycotoxins. And that's primarily due to, to protozoa action. There is some bacterial action, but it's uh, the greatest percent of it would be from protozoa. Uh, the issue is, is that some mycotoxins are much more stable. In other words, it's a, it's a bigger challenge to break down that molecular structure. The other thing is that it takes a specific protozoa or group of protozoa to impact each different group of mycotoxins. So we have to have a broad protozoa population in adequate numbers to get the greatest effect. The other thing is, as we try to run more dry matter through a rumen in a shorter period of time, it has less contact, the mycotoxin has less contact with the protozoa, so more will bypass the rumen and get into the lower gut. And is there any difference in some of those individual mycotoxins or do they all sort of get seen by those those protozoa and those bacteria in, in the same way? They're all broken down to the same extent or are there differences in, in that, Max? Well, there, there are differences because we know that the passage rate of, of certain mycotoxins is greater than others from the rumen to the lower gut. Some mycotoxins such as fumonisin, there's not a significant protozoa that breaks down fumonisin. So it, the greatest percent of fumonisin passes right on through the rumen and will accumulate in the lower gut and in particular the, the liver. So we do know that there are differences in the rate at which these mycotoxins are broken down. That's great, Max. I really appreciate all of the, the time and the, the comments and information around the concept of mycotoxins and, and forages and what you've seen in the field over these uh, past few months. Um, before we go, are there any sort of final comments that you'd like to leave our listeners with as they contemplate 
looking forward to this next harvest and and what perhaps uh, should be on their minds? Well, the next harvest is always the question that we get asked, and uh, we're we're springtime here in North America now, and I've already had questions about what do I think will be in corn silage this fall, and the corn grain that we're going to plant is still in the still in the bag in the shed and hadn't even touched soil yet. So we're a little bit premature in terms of that, but the weather forecast looks like it's going to be a dry summer. So that could pose a challenge with uh, stress on the plant. So that, that could bode for a somewhat higher mold infestation, but we'll, time will tell. I just tell people to don't do forages by the calendar. Be sure to go out and check your field for plant health, plant maturity, and make decisions based on what you see and not on a date on a calendar that you would typically harvest. Uh, It's nice to know when you harvested last year, uh, but maybe you harvested it too late last year. So we don't want to repeat that again. Uh, And a mycotoxin management program is not, it's not one thing. It's not just a test. Uh, It's not just a compaction study. Uh, It's not just how well cows eat feed. It's not just about a product to help remediate mycotoxin challenge. It's everything put into one complete program. And the more data, the more information, the more observation that we can generate and put into that program or that library of information, we're going to be much more successful in controlling that mycotoxin risk as it's placed in front of the cows on a daily basis. Uh, Max, many thanks for your time today. Great advice to leave our listeners with and really appreciate your time. Thank you, Nick. Uh, It's a pleasure to do it and uh, hope to follow up with some of the things we talked about later on. We hope you enjoyed listening today and look forward to you joining us next time on the Mycotoxin Matters podcast. For more information on the topics discussed, please visit nomycotoxins.com. That's K-N-O-W mycotoxins.com.